Let's do it one more time. Good morning. The reason I'm trying to get everyone engaged is because uh, this is not a topic where you want to uh, be uh, half asleep or not focus. It's a very intense topic. It's a very important topic, and that is the topic of pain and suffering. We're beginning a new series, as Pastor Marcus said, which is called Explore God. And what is unique and exciting about this series is that we are partnering with a, a, around 100 or so churches in Miami-Dade County to discuss this exact topic today. And the subsequent topics over the next four weeks as well. It's so exciting to see the church in Miami-Dade County unite together and to tackle really difficult questions. And to say, listen, we want our churches to be a place where people can come. They can ask questions. They can present their doubts. And they can feel safe to do so. And for us as a church to recognize that though many of us here are people of faith and have been people of faith for a long time, we may still ask these questions too. And so because we're talking about suffering, I want her to suffer a little bit. And here's how. I want to ask you to participate in the sermon. Do you guys want to participate in the sermon? No. <laughs> Most people said no. Um, that was not what I was expecting. But for the few people that said yes, thank you. Uh, there's a reason that it says uh, text that number up on the screen. Here's what I want to ask you to do. In the next few minutes, I want you to text your answer to that question. Now. I'm going to keep it anonymous, okay? But what I want to do is I want to actually read a few of your answers. Again, anonymous. I'm not going to out anyone. And I want to dissect a few of the answers that come in. I want to see what you guys have to say. And then we want to discuss it together so that there's a way that we can interact and engage together. So why would God allow pain and suffering? Maybe it's an answer that you have clinged to. Maybe it is an answer that you have heard. Whatever it may be, text it in. I'm going to choose a few of them, and we're going to dissect it together. You don't have to write anything else. Just put that number in your text, uh, iMessage or Samsung or what, whatever that is called in Samsung. I don't know because I'm an iPhone loyalist. But text your answer there, and I will receive it up here, and we'll discuss it. You know, it's interesting, this question, why would God allow pain and suffering? Because it covers a landscape of every belief system in the entire world. It is both a philosophical question and it is an existential question. We try to wrap our heads around it and we want to wrap our hearts around it. And the reason is, is because our lived experience is full of pain and suffering. There is one guarantee in life for every human being and that is you will experience pain and suffering. There is abuse and there is infertility. There is disappointment. There is violence. We see stories of mass shooting. There are diseases. There are disasters. And of course, there is death. There's all types of pain and suffering that we experience in life of varying degrees. And when we experience pain and when we experience suffering, the natural human reaction is to say, why? And, and to look to God or whatever your belief system is and say, why? Why would you allow this? Why would you permit this? Why is this okay? See, Islam has sought to answer this question of pain and suffering, and here's how they answer it. A Muslim would say that pain and suffering is a result of unbelief, of, of kufr. And because of unbelief, 
there is all this pain and suffering. And when you experience pain and suffering, it is your opportunity to perfect and purify yourself so that you can more wholeheartedly surrender to God. Because at the end of the day, pain and suffering is God's will and you just have to accept it. Have to accept it and you have to better yourself through it. Now, Eastern religions have a different take on pain and suffering. They say that pain and suffering is an opportunity for you to acknowledge who you are and the reality that you live in. And so Buddhists would say that pain and suffering is something that you have to accept and then you have to transcend. You have to try to remove yourself from the attachments of pain and suffering. You have to achieve enlightenment so that it no longer affects you. You accept it, but it no longer affects you. You transcend it. Hinduism says that pain and suffering is a result of karma, of cause and effect. And it is because of something you have done either in this life or in a past life that is now catching up with you and you are to work through it. Philosophers for hundreds of years have dealt with this question and many philosophers have decided that the best way to answer the question of pain and suffering is to remove the problem. And the problem for most philosophers is God. So Albert Camus, Frederick Nietzsche, Michel Foucault, all these different philosophers, they say, here's how you deal with pain and suffering. Remove God. If there's no God, there's still pain and suffering, but there's no problem because it's just a result of natural selection. It's just the reality. And you have to just go through it because life at the end of the day is meaningless anyways. So you just work through it. And Christianity has a long history of addressing this question as well. And so, if you haven't texted in, now's your opportunity. We're going to dissect a few of your questions. I see that a few of you have texted in, and we're going to look at that together. Let me pull up the first one here. Okay, here. Here's one. It says, without pain and suffering, we could not as easily enjoy health, peace, and joy. It's a good answer. Without pain and suffering, we cannot as easily enjoy health, peace, and joy. I think maybe the answer to the question is that pain and suffering is an opportunity for our refinement, for us to grow and to experience something better. We're experiencing pain, we're experiencing suffering, but it's an opportunity for us to then experience peace and joy and to kind of refine and to grow through that experience. I think that's a true answer. I think that's a good answer uh, because it's, it's experienced in our everyday life. All of us here know that endurance produces virtue. It produces strong character. And so when you go through something difficult, it produces something good, right? Diamonds are formed through pressure. Gold is formed through fire. And so maybe the answer to why would God allow pain and suffering is because it's an opportunity for our refinements, an opportunity for us to go through something difficult to experience something good, that if we didn't experience hate, we couldn't experience love. And so we have to go through this to experience beauty. We have to go through this to experience joy. There's a, a passage in Romans chapter 8 that talks about how we are more than conquerors through all the different pain and suffering we go in. I think it's Romans 8 uh, verse 37 and it speaks to this answer, that through our pain and suffering, we are more than conquerors, that there's this opportunity in faith, through faith, to conquer and to move through 
your pain and suffering? This is a true answer. It's a good answer, but it's an incomplete answer. Because not all of our suffering is neatly packaged for us to to see how it's used for our refinement. There are many things that happen to us where we think, I don't understand how this is for my refinement. How is this going to produce joy? Especially when it's not a result of our action. Right? When something is inflicted upon us, when pain and suffering is inflicted upon us or is a result of what's happening around us, and we don't see how and why this thing is necessary for our refinement, it's really difficult to say, I'm just going to accept that somehow this is for my joy. That may be true philosophically, but in the midst of it, it doesn't feel true existentially. It's like, I don't know how, how is this for my, is this necessary for me to experience joy and love and my refinement? I don't know. So it's a good answer, but maybe not, an in, maybe it's incomplete. There's another one, just came in. It says, God is in the process of eliminating all pain and suffering. Why he doesn't do it today, I don't know. But he does promise to use pain that happens today for our good and for his glory. It's a good answer. And that, I think that answer speaks to the, the idea that God has a plan, right? That God is using your pain and my pain and, and the suffering of our world and our lived experience for his glory and for a greater plan. We may not know why. But God is using it. He has a plan. This is a a, a very standard answer to the question because it kind of takes the character of God and it removes God from us to where we're acknowledging God is God and we are not. So if God is all-knowing, if God is all-powerful, then he is able to use our pain and suffering, the pain and suffering of the world, to create an experience that is in fact for our good. One of the most maybe memorized and recited passages in the entire Bible is Romans 8, 28, which is that God works all things for the good of those who love him. And so the, the philosophical ex- answer to the question is that when in the midst of pain and suffering, why would God allow it? It's because he's working it for our good. He has a plan. He's all-knowing and he's all-powerful. And so he's using it for our good. And because also God is eternal, He takes everything, not in light of a set amount of time, but in eternity. This is a biblical answer. It is a true answer. And many philosophers, in fact, have uh, created an illustration that goes along with God having a plan. And it goes like this. It's called the noceum argument. Have any of you heard this before, noceum argument? It goes like this. Imagine you're sitting outside of a tent and there's a man outside the tent, and he says, I want you to go inside, and I want you to count how many St. Bernards are inside the tent. St. Bernards are the dogs with the barrels around their neck. I don't know why they have barrels around their neck, but they always do whenever I see a picture of them. And so you go inside the tent, you look around, you see these massive dogs. There's one, two, three, four, there's seven St. Bernards. You come out, and you say, there's seven St. Bernards. Are you confident? Yes, I'm confident. They're huge. You cannot miss them. Counted them. He says, Okay. I want you to go back in the tent this time, and I want you to count how many noceums are in there. If you've been in Miami for long, you know what a noceum is, especially when you go to the beach, you start getting bit by an invisible bug, and you've got red dots all over you. And so you walk inside the tent, you look around, and what do you see? 
Nothing. You can't see noceums because you can't see them. That's why their name's noceum. You're looking around, you're getting bit, you don't know, and you walk in, you're like, I have no idea how many are in there. See, because you can't see them doesn't mean that they don't exist. And the argument goes that just because you cannot see God's plan for how he's using pain and suffering doesn't mean that there isn't a plan that exists. It's a really good answer. It's a very helpful answer. But it's an incomplete answer. Philosophically, it helps. Existentially, it doesn't. Because in the midst of pain and suffering, you can feel when someone comes up to you in the midst of your suffering and says, it's okay, God has a plan. And it's for your good. You're like, for my good? Okay, I, I know God is no, all-knowing and all-powerful and eternal and all of these things, but is he also loving? Because to answer the question of pain and suffering with God has a plan and just to only hold to that is to essentially feel like God is using you as a tool or as an instrument, as a means to an end. Even if the end is good, it doesn't feel loving to be used as a means to an end and to be forced into something difficult. All right, one more. One more response. This one. Let me pull. There's a bunch. You guys really jumped in on here. Thank you. All right. Okay. This one is that pain and suffering is a result of our free will, our choice to rebel against God, and therefore we live in a broken world. I think this is probably the most common answer to this question. Why does God allow pain and suffering? It's because of free will, of sin, and that we live in a broken world. This is a very good answer. It's true. And what it does is it passes the love test. So where God has a plan doesn't necessarily pass the love test existentially with your heart. This does because God gives us to ourselves. He doesn't treat us like robots. He says, I'm, I'm going to give you choice, and what you choose will therefore affect you. You will bear the consequences, good or bad, based upon your choice. God creates the world. He does not create it with pain and suffering. He does not create it with disease or disaster or disappointment or death, and yet he puts humanity in the garden, Adam and Eve, and they are given a choice. Will you follow God and will you obey him or will you choose your own path, chart your own course, disobey, and then face the consequences of that action? Well, we know the story because we continue the cycle. We chose as a people to rebel against God and we still do that today. God gives us an opportunity to follow him and to obey him, and every single day we choose in different ways to disobey and to choose our own path, to try to be our own God, to make sense of life for ourselves, and so we face the consequences of that. You see, God did not unleash pain and suffering into the world. We unleashed it because of our choice to rebel against God, and therefore darkness and sin and brokenness has come and corrupted this world and our experience, and this is why there is pain and suffering. And so in the midst of your pain and suffering, in fact, it's actually a signal that something's wrong, that something's broken. And God is in the process of redeeming us and calling us 
to himself. This is a very strong answer, but this is incomplete too. Here's why. If you are a parent, you know that there are times where you allow your child to make, to, to, to make choices that will negatively affect them, but they have, to, they have to do that in order to learn what is good and what is right. And so you tell your child, don't touch the stove, and then you see them walking over to the stove and reaching up. There may be a time where you say, you know what, I've pulled them away from the stove too many times, I'm going to let them touch it. They touch the stove, they burn their hand, they've learned. They face the consequence of their action. You gave them the ability to choose themselves, and now they're going to face the consequence of that action. This is, in a sense, the answer that is being given. God gives us the ability to choose. We face the consequences of our actions, and therefore there's brokenness and sin in the world and suffering. But if a parent is walking in the woods with their child, and they're having a great time together, and everything is going well, and they're looking up, and they're looking at the birds, and they're experiencing the beauty of nature, and all of a sudden the child steps into quicksand, does the parent look at the child and say, man, you shouldn't have stepped there. I guess you're just going to have to get swallowed up by the sand and drown. See you later. I'm going to go and find another child. Right? Is, is it, are you removing the autonomy of the child by pulling them out of the quicksand? No. See, there are times in the, when we are in the midst of pain and suffering. When we see pain and suffering in the lives of other people, we say, God, can you not just pull them out of that? It, it, is it really necessary? You're not going to remove their autonomy to pull them out. Why are you allowing that? It doesn't seem to connect. You see, all these answers and many more that you sent in are good answers. They're true answers, but they're incomplete answers. They may have been a support to you and they may continue to be a support to you, but they're like a facet of a diamond, you see, a diamond is beautiful when it is whole, when you look at it, and all the different sides of it that reflect light, it's beautiful. But if you were to shave off and cut just a side or a part of the diamond, it would still be a diamond, that's true, but it wouldn't be nearly as beautiful. It's incomplete. It's more beautiful when all the sides are connected together as a whole. And see, a lot of the answers that we give to this question of why would God allow pain and suffering are answers that are a part of a whole. And to just hold on to one and to cling to one and to think one perfectly answers the question is dangerous because it may answer it philosophically, but it doesn't necessarily answer it existentially. Not every answer fits every situation. And so, though they all may be true, what is the answer? What is the whole that we're to cling to and hold on to in the midst of pain and suffering. And this is what we see in the life of Job. He gives us this very clearly, what it looks like. How do you walk through pain and suffering? What is the answer to the question? And so Job chapter 1, as we read in the beginning, is this phenomenal story of a man that we have been looking to as an example of how to endure suffering for thousands of years. Job is unaware that this conversation between God and Satan is going on. 
God says, look at my servant Job, look how he follows me, look how he obeys me, look how he worships me. And Satan says, yeah, of course he does. He has everything. You have blessed him beyond measure. He has a hedge of protection around him. He has an incredible family. He is very wealthy. He has all these employees. His business is booming. He lives in a great environment. He's never hungry. He's never thirsty. Literally, nothing is wrong with his life. Of course, he's going to follow you and worship you. But if you bring pain and suffering into his life, If you strip away some of those blessings, he will, in fact, deny you. He is a fraud. And God allows Satan to bring suffering into the life of Job. Look at verse 8. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then, Throughout the conversation, God says, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he began to inflict suffering into Job's life. We read through it, but here's essentially what happened. In one day, Job loses his business. All of his employees die. He loses all of his money, all of his livestock die. His entire bank account is burned up. And the majority of his family is killed. In one day, business, bank account, family, gone. Removed and stripped from him. And when you read this story, if you were just to pick up Job and start reading, what is the first question you would ask why? Like, why is this necessary? Why would you allow this, God? And see, when we sit in that difficult question and don't just ignore it and don't just say, I'm not going to read this story, but sit in it, we see something profound. And that is God's unique relationship to pain and suffering. You see, the first thing that we see just in the first chapter here is that The suffering and pain of Job's life was not God's idea. It was Satan's idea. Satan comes to God and says, hey, I want to bring suffering into his life. It will prove that he is a fraud. And God allows it. God is not actively bringing about suffering and pain because it is not his desire. He hates it. As I mentioned before, God created the world perfect and good with no disease, no death, no disappointment, no disaster, and yet because of our choice that he gives us, we bring sin and brokenness and darkness into the world. We have unleashed those forces. It was not God, it was us, and yet he allows it. He is in total control, and he hates suffering, but he allows it, and we see that here. So that answers one of those questions. It's one of the, the simple answers to the question of why would God allow pain and suffering is free will. God hates it. It's not his. He does not, in fact, inflict it. It is because of our choice. It is because of the forces of darkness and evil in the world. And yet, for some reason, God allows it. He allows it, but he limits it. And you're like, this is exactly my problem. (laughs) He allows it to happen. That is my problem, but he limits it. Notice what happens here. God tells Satan, okay, You can go and bring suffering into Job's life, but I'm going to limit you. You are not allowed to stretch out your hand against him. 
You can affect the things around him, but not him. He limits it. And you have to ask the question, why? Why would God allow it but limit it? The reason is, is because God is in his plan, right? There's that answer of God's plan through pain and suffering. In his plan, he is seeking to accomplish the very opposite of Satan's desire. See, Satan desires to prove that Job is a fraud, that he doesn't in fact authentically worship God, that he doesn't obey him because he loves him, that he just acts that way because of all the blessings in his life. And to prove the very opposite and to accomplish the very opposite of Satan's desire, God allows Satan to bring suffering, though he limits it, so that it will prove the truth of who Job is and therefore who God is in relationship to him. Look at verse 20 through 22. At the very end in this one day when Job has lost pretty much everything in his life, it says, Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. Wow. He loses all of his money, he loses his business, and he loses most of his family in one day. And it says that he falls down on his knees and he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. He worships. You see, in that one day when everything is removed, Satan wanted to prove that Job was a fraud. And so God allows suffering and limits it. And it proves the exact opposite. That Job, in fact, loves God and worships him even when his life is crumbling around him. You may think to yourself, okay, I understand that God gives me free will and that I face the consequence of my actions and I face the consequence of the actions of others and that God has a plan but I don't see it. I don't see how God is using what's happening in my life and what I'm going through for good. I can't quite fathom that. Neither did Job. You see, we have the, the advantage of reading from a different perspective. Job had no idea. Job had no idea that God and Satan were having any kind of conversation. God never comes to Job and says, hey, good job. Thank you for proving me right. On that day, sorry, I had to allow all this pain and suffering, but we, you know, Satan and I were having this conversation, and I wanted to prove that you know, our relationship was genuine and that your worship was authentic, and so I allowed all this stuff to happen. Job has no idea. In fact, the, the rest of the story, we see Job really struggling with it. God, why would you allow this? Why, why is this happening? He never denies God. He continues to worship God. He continues to obey and follow God, but it's not easy for him. And there's this long dissertation where, where God comes to Job and says, hey, were you there when the orders were given to create the morning? Do you, Job, understand the vast expanse of the universe? Do you know how to come and get to the house of light? Do you know where darkness stems from? He begins to speak all of these things to Job at, to essentially humble him and say, do you have the same perspective and wisdom and knowledge and power 
and love as I do. The book ends with Job hearing all of this. And in verse 42, verse 2 and 3, Job says this to God. It's the very end of the book. He says, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is that Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. See, as Job continues in his life to follow God and to worship God, he does not deny God. He still struggles with the the reality of his suffering. And he he doesn't have the vantage point of God to understand how God's going to use this suffering and pain in his life for a good plan. He can't see it. He can't possibly fathom it. And yet, as he interacts with God, he ends by saying, these things are too wonderful for me. He actually looks at his suffering and says, to understand, God, how you're using this in the light of eternity is too wonderful for me to ever fathom. I could never possibly imagine how you're using this. What surrender? And it's true. Job could have never imagined that thousands of years later we would be here this morning looking at his life and his story and his example. He could have never imagined that millions upon billions of people looked to this man's life as a source of strength and encouragement in the midst of suffering. He could have never imagined the legacy that God was building through his life. And it wasn't easy for him to to see, but God was refining him. He was showing him something beautiful of who God is at the very end of his life when he says, God, you can do things I can never imagine. Your purposes cannot be thwarted. But now I understand that if I were to see your plan and your purpose, it would be too wonderful for me to even fathom. You see, he holds on to this mystery. And he holds on because he has the answer not an answer. He has the answer to the question of why would God allow pain and suffering, not an answer. He doesn't just hold on to God as a good plan. He doesn't just hold on to free will. He doesn't just hold on that God is using this to refine me so I can experience some good things. He has the answer, and we see that in the middle of the book. In chapter 19, Job is recounting all that he's, that's happening in his life. He says, God, everything is being stripped away from me. The suffering is all around me. It never ends. Everyone in my life has abandoned me, and it feels like you have abandoned me. And then Job chapter 19, he says this in verse 25. For I know that my, what's that word? Redeemer lives. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. What is it that holds Job through? It is not just a simple answer to a philosophical question of why would God allow pain and suffering. It's an answer that both satisfies us mentally, but more importantly, it satisfies our heart. It answers the existential question of why would God allow it because he holds on to the truth that his Redeemer lives, that there is a Messiah, that there is a Redeemer who is coming And we'll stand at the end on the last day. It's powerful. You see, the answer to the question of why would God allow pain and suffering 
is a story. It's a story. It's a story of Jesus Christ who has come for you and for me. You see, Jesus Christ who came into this world and God allowed suffering to be inflicted upon him. And God did not limit his wrath upon Jesus. He limits it in our life. He did not limit his wrath upon Christ. And yet Christ took the full weight of our sin and our guilt and our shame, the full wrath of God, the full judgment of God upon his shoulders and he paid for it and he died in your stead and my stead so that even in the midst of pain and suffering, you and me can know the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Spirit because of the sacrifice of the Son. You see, the greatest comfort in the midst of pain and suffering is the feeling of being loved. That is the greatest comfort in the midst of pain and suffering, is to know that you are loved. And in the midst of our trouble and our difficulty and our trials, we cry out to God and we look up and we say, why? Because that is our natural response. And God responds with, I know, I know, I hate suffering too. And I know you will never be able to understand why I allow it and how I limit it and how it is in fact for your good, and how I have given free will to you, but I still allow some of these things for your refinement and also for a greater, more eternal perspective. I know it's too wonderful for you to imagine, but instead of looking up and saying, why, look out and look across to Jesus. You see, we can struggle with the answer to the question, philosophically, but we can never deny that God loves us that we are loved by him. Jesus says this in the book of John. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. See, the answer is a story. It is a person, and it's Jesus. That is the most important thing to cling to, is to know that in the midst of your suffering, you are loved by God. It may be difficult to wrestle through but God loves you because he gave his only son for you so that you will not perish, but you'll have eternal life with him. Will you pray with me? God, we confess that your plan is too wonderful for us. It's difficult for us to fathom your goodness and your mercy we can't imagine what it's like to orchestrate everything happening in the span of history in the lives of every person with an eternal perspective. We have no idea what it's like to be all-knowing and all-powerful and also all-loving, but God, would we cling to that truth that you are loving, that we will have trouble in this life. But Jesus, you have overcome the world, and so we can take heart we can hold on to that hope. We can feel loved even when it feels like everything is crumbling. Jesus, you walked to a catastrophe on the cross for our sake so that we would not have to fear that we are walking towards a catastrophe ourselves. We are walking into your arms, God. And you have promised us that.